Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This episode of the Aotearoa History Show contains some descriptions of graphic violence. Please listen with care. In 1822, Te Whiro Paramount leader of Waikato looked out from the top of Matakitaki. Matakitaki is a raised hill, sitting in a strategic position between the fork of the Waipa River and the Mangapiko stream. It overlooked the main route into Waikato territory and was defended by a network of three pa, or fortresses. They were surrounded both by walls and ditches and the natural defences of the rivers, dense bush and steep banks. About 5,000 Waikato Māori were sheltering inside. Warning had come of a taiwa, a war party. Now about 3,000 warriors of Ngāpuhi were outside. Ngāpuhi were there to avenge defeats in earlier conflicts with iwi from Waikato and Hauraki. Leading them was Hongi Hika, Paramount's leader of his iwi, recently returned from a voyage to England. Thanks to Hongi's efforts on that trip, Ngāpuhi weren't just armed with traditional weapons like taiaha and patu. They also held hundreds of European muskets. At first, Te Whirofiro took Ngāpuhi by surprise, raiding one of their camps, killing about 100 warriors and capturing some of their muskets. But when his men returned to celebrate their victory, they were hit with musket fire from across the river, which killed combatants and non-combatants alike. Seeing that slaughter and hearing the unfamiliar roar of gunfire, the people inside the pa panicked. They tried to run, but a bridge across a deep ditch at the eastern end of the pa collapsed under their weight. The 19th century Ngāti Maru historian and politician Hoane Nahi gave this graphic description of the disaster. Those who had at first fled across the ditch on the wooden bridge went in an orderly manner, but as the voice of the guns continued to speak, it caused dread, and the fleeing ones in their wish to escape hustled each other in passing over the bridge. Thus, many fell into the deep ditch. The first to fall in their attempts to climb out were knocked back by others falling on them. Many in the ditch, seeing their relatives escaping, cried out to them for help, but the fear was so great that all relationship was forgotten. The ditch soon became full, and those underneath were trodden to death or smothered by the others. Ngāpuhi now assaulted the pa, and although the Waikato and their friends fought hard with their traditional Māori weapons, they were soon overcome, 
being either killed or driven to flight. By the end of the day, it's thought 1,500 Waikato Māori were dead and hundreds more captured. The battle for Mātakitaki was maybe the bloodiest in the history of Aotearoa. It's possible more New Zealanders were killed that day than any day of the First or Second World Wars. But it was just one of a series of conflicts which were fought all over Aotearoa for more than 30 years. Out of approximately 100,000 Māori living at the time, it's estimated 50,000 were directly affected, killed, injured, enslaved or forced to migrate from traditional lands, sometimes permanently. These conflicts had a tremendous influence on the rest of the 19th century and the aftershocks continue to be felt today, 200 years later. These days they are most commonly known as the Musket Wars. Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. So, how did the musket wars begin? Let's start by setting the scene. James Cook's expeditions to Aotearoa in the 1760s and 1770s were followed by a series of visits from other Europeans, explorers, colonisers, sealers, traders and whalers. By this point, many Māori were well aware of what a musket could do. Some had seen them demonstrated by visiting Europeans, and some had, of course, been on the receiving end of the guns as well. But at first, visiting ships only sold the weapons in small numbers. Many were so badly made they didn't fire at all, others could just blow up in your face. And the first battle of the musket wars didn't do much to prove the power of firearms over traditional Māori weapons. In 1807, at Taiwa, a war party of about 500 Ngāpuhi warriors made its way south to attack two rival iwi, Ngāti Whātua and Te Rōrua. Ngāpuhi had a handful of muskets and must have been interested to see what they could do. But they never got the chance. As Ngāpuhi settled down for a meal at Moremonui, north of what's now Dargaville, Ngāti Whātua and Te Rōrua launched a preemptive attack. Ngāpuhi rushed to load their muskets, but when they raised them to fire, the Ngāti Whātua Rangatira Murupainga ordered his warriors to drop to the ground. The musket balls whizzed over their heads. Before Ngāpui could reload, Ngāti Whātua and Te Rōrua closed the distance and cut them down. Eventually, a Te Rōrua rangatira called Tāoho called an end to the fighting. He was related to Ngāpui through marriage, so he wanted to avoid an outright massacre. Still, this was a major defeat for Ngāpui. There were so many bodies left in the sand, the battle became known as Te Kaya Te Kāroro, the Feast of the Seagulls. One of the survivors was a Ngāpuhi rangatira called Hongi Hika. Hongi's relative, Pukaya, was the leader of the Taiwa and ordered him to flee when he saw the battle was lost. Hongi hid in a nearby swamp and watched as his friends and whānau, including Pukaya, were killed. 
Tikanga demanded that Hongi and his iwi respond to this disaster. You might think that having seen muskets fail to swing that battle in Ngāpui's favour, Hongihika would have decided the new weapons weren't worth the trouble. But he had a broader vision. Hongi had been trained from childhood as a war leader. He was a shrewd tactician and strategist. He also had help from one of his wives, Turikatsuku. And despite being blind, Turikatsuku often went to war with Hongi. She was his closest advisor. Hongi and Turikatuku believed that if Ngāpui could get enough muskets, they would be unbeatable. And there was only one way to get muskets, from Europeans. Through the 1810s, Hongihika and other Ngāpuhi rangatira encouraged Christian missionaries to live in the Bay of Islands. Hongi never became a Christian, but he knew a missionary settlement would lead to more trade opportunities, not just for muskets, but all kinds of other new technologies. By 1815, Hongi was the undisputed leader of Ngāpuhi, and more and more ships were dropping anchor at his home in Kirikiri. Hongihika was one of the most significant figures of New Zealand history, and he did more than just fight battles. He was a talented artist. He carved a self-portrait for the missionary leader Samuel Marsden. He was also a lover of innovation. He encourages iwi to adopt new tools and crops and to learn reading and writing. In 1820, he travelled to England with missionary Thomas Kendall, and while there, worked with academics at Cambridge University to create the first Māori Dictionary. He spent the rest of his time in England building diplomatic ties. He acted as an ambassador for Ngāpuhi, meeting with British aristocrats. He even had an audience with King George IV, and King George gifted Hongi a suit of chainmail armour, which he later wore in battle. It saved his life at least twice and apparently led to some rumours that he was literally invincible. But Hongi's visit to England wasn't only about diplomacy and dictionaries. When he travelled back to Aotearoa in 1821, he stopped in Sydney and picked up several hundred muskets and a huge supply of ammunition. These weapons kicked the musket wars into overdrive. So traditional Māori warfare was mostly hand-to-hand combat with weapons like taiaha and patu. But almost overnight, Hongihika had changed the game. He introduced massed volleys of musket fire, which could cut down enemies up to 100 metres away, making his forces all but unbeatable. However, other historians argue guns alone were too unreliable and inaccurate to give musket-armed taua a major advantage in battle. As historian Dr Paul Darcy writes, Fear of firearms and cannons soon gave way to an acute awareness of both their potential and their limitations. There are examples all over the Pacific of musketeers being overcome when their opponents anticipated their musket discharges and rushed in while the guns were being reloaded. Historians like Dr Darcy say muskets alone weren't enough to fundamentally change Māori warfare. They argued what really tipped the balance was another European introduction, the potato. Potatoes were much easier to grow than kumara, and unlike kumara, potatoes weren't tapu, so there were fewer restrictions on who could grow them. This meant the best gardeners, who were also often the best warriors, could spend less time farming and more time fighting. Also, potatoes could be carried long distances without rotting, meaning warriors could attack distant targets and support long sieges. 
Some historians think potatoes were so important to these conflicts that the musket wars should be renamed as the Potato Wars. Others still insist that guns were the deciding factor. They point out that Māori wouldn't have gone through so much trouble to obtain the weapons if they weren't useful. In any case, by the end of the 1830s, Ngāpuhi Taiwa had reached all over the North Island. The battle at Mātakitaki Pa in 1822 was just one of these conflicts. Ngāpuhi swept down the west coast all the way to Te Atara, Wellington Harbour, made repeated forays into the Bay of Plenty, east coast, Tairawhiti and Waikato, and travelled northward to the tip of Tehiku. Now, you might think that thanks to all his victories, Hongihika would have become like the emperor of Aotearoa, ruling over the lands of the tribes he'd conquered. But actually, Hongi almost never occupied land of the people he defeated. Territorial expansion wasn't Hongihika's objective. The point was mana and utu. We've talked about these concepts in previous episodes. Mana can be translated as prestige, status or spiritual power, while utu means something like rebalancing or reciprocity. Hongi wasn't launching invasions to conquer land. He was seeking utu and enhancing the mana of his people in the process. In fact, Hongi named his muskets after famous Ngāpuhi defeats as reminders of the utu he needed to achieve. Utu also shaped the response of the tribes Ngāpuhi attacked. These tribes didn't just suffer physically or economically, there was a spiritual and psychological element which often couldn't be resolved without utu. And that didn't always mean attacking the people who attacked you. The victim of a raid by one iwi sometimes sought utu by attacking an iwi or hapu, which weren't even directly involved in the original dispute. This could create cycles of violence that went on and on, but not always. Sometimes hapu and iwi were able to break the cycle. Te hoho te rongo, to make peace. For example, in the aftermath of the Battle of Mātakitaki, Ngāpuhi made a peace offering by releasing several high-ranking Waikato women they had captured. This was followed by a strategic marriage between Hongihika's niece and Te Whirofiro's brother, cementing a peace between their respective hapū. But when battles did happen, things could get very nasty. Missionaries wrote in horrified tones about what sometimes followed these battles. Kaitangata, cannibalism, and mokomokai, the taking and preserving of human heads. Now, historians question the accuracy of some of these accounts. Missionaries often wrote about what they heard secondhand rather than what they actually saw, and may have sometimes exaggerated the levels of violence. But it's clear from Māori oral history and eyewitness accounts that kaitangata and mokomokai did happen during the musket wars. One of those eyewitnesses was a guy called Samuel Knight. He was a teacher at a mission school. Now, just a heads up, what comes next is quite graphic. Here's what Samuel Knight wrote about the aftermath of one battle he saw in 1836. I came to a place where a number of bodies were laid out previous to their being cut up for the oven. A body, apparently, that moment killed, was dragged into the camp before me. His head was cut off before I could look round. This did not seem to satisfy the wretches. His breast was opened and his heart, etc., steaming with warmth, was pulled out and carried off. And to be clear, it wasn't just Pākehā who were disturbed by this. It was pretty horrifying to Māori as well. Eating a part of an enemy or taking their head was a serious insult to their relatives. 
So why did it happen? Well, utsu and mana were significant factors, but there were other reasons, and there are many interpretations of this. For one, kaitangata was thought to give spiritual protection against atsua, gods or deities, and sipuna, other ancestors. Eating someone literally made them a part of you. That was thought to give protection against spiritual forces which might otherwise rise up against you as an invader. Mokomokai, preserved human heads, also had practical aspects. They could be traded back to their relatives in exchange for a peace deal. Plus, it wasn't just the heads of enemies which were preserved. Māori preserved the heads of their own whānau as well. And while these aspects of Māori culture were disturbing to European observers, it's worth remembering Māori were just as disturbed by aspects of European culture. Yeah, for example, when a Ngāpuhi rangatira named Te Pahi visited Sydney in 1805, he was absolutely horrified to hear two men were about to be hanged just for stealing food. He tried to intervene with the governor, who later wrote, Te Pahi endeavoured to reason with me on the injustice of slaying men for stealing pork. With much earnestness, he urged his being allowed to take them to New Zealand, where taking provisions was not accounted a crime. So from today's perspective, all this stuff looks pretty horrifying. But we've got to remember that it was pretty normal for the cultures that these people were in. And although the musket wars do feature plenty of gruesome stories, so do pretty much all other wars in history. And there are also plenty of stories of heroism, perseverance and mercy from the musket wars. Like the story of Te Waru of Ngai Te Rangi. His wife and children were captured when Ngāpuhi attacked Tauranga in 1820. While Ngāpuhi was celebrating their victory, Te Waru set out to rescue his whānau. Here's how historian and Waitangi Tribunal member Ron Crosby describes what happened in his book, The Forgotten Wars. Te Waru stealthily approached the Ngāpuhi encampment near the mouth of the Wairoa River, where he managed to disarm the Ngāpuhi rangatira Te Whare Umu. Te Waru handed over his weapons to Te Whare Umu and asked him to bind him and take him to the encampment. Once there, he asked for the release of his whānau. Napui was so impressed by Te Waru's sparing of Te Whare Umu and his courage in allowing himself to be led into their encampment that they acceded to his request. Moreover, peace was made, and to mark the peace, the Napui chief Te Morenga made a gift of a musket to Te Waru before the toa departed. Through the 1820s, an arms race swept across Aotearoa. Ngāpuhi desperately tried to maintain their advantage in firepower, while their rivals tried just as hard to catch up. But that was easier said than done. Muskets were extremely expensive. Traders wanted up to 200 baskets of potatoes, or 25 pigs, for a single gun. This encouraged a vicious cycle. Much of the food production was done by mōkai, war captives or slaves. More captives meant more food. More food meant more guns. And more guns, of course, meant more opportunities to capture workers. Mōkai were also part of a trade in mōkomōkai, the preserved human heads we mentioned earlier. European collectors and museums had this crazy obsession with mokomokai, and demand was so high that traders were prepared to offer a musket for two heads. So hundreds of people were captured, tattooed and killed so their heads could be sold. 
many heads were also stolen from burial sites. This trade was formally banned by authorities in Sydney in 1835, but probably persisted way beyond that. In modern times, major efforts have been made to recover these heads from overseas museums and return them to their descendants. All this shows just how desperate the race for muskets got. Iwi and Hapu, who couldn't keep up, often had to run for their lives. The area around modern-day Auckland, Tamaki Makoto, was mostly deserted between 1825 and 1835 as local hapu fled to escape Ngāpuhi. These heke, or migrations, were widespread during the musket wars and often triggered further conflicts. One of the most significant was led by Tero Paraha of Ngāti Toa Rangatira. In 1822, Te Rauparaha and his people were driven from their home in Kafia by powerful musket-armed rivals from Waikato. Over the next two years, Te Rauparaha gathered a coalition of two to 3,000 people made up of his own iwi, Ngāti Tuarangatira, and several West Coast and North Taranaki iwi. They journeyed south to Horofinua, Kapiti Island and Te Whanganuiatara. Sometimes this heke was peaceful. Te Rauparaha, like Hongihika, was skilled at building alliances, but he also fought many battles with iwi which opposed his heke. And unlike Hongi, Te Rauparaha did occupy some territories he seized. He made up for the loss of access to lands in Kafia by capturing territory all around Kapiti and the Wellington region. Then, from 1827 to 1836, Ngāti Toa and its allies struck further, invading the lands of northern South Island iwi and Ngaitahu further south, devastating Kaikoura, Akarua and Kaiapui. This was partly to try and control the valuable trade in Ponamu. But those who were successful early on in the musket wars didn't always remain successful. Hongihika died in 1828 after being wounded the previous year during a battle at Mangamuka, north of the Hokianga. That same year, Te Whirofiro of Waikato launched the first of two successful taiwa in the Tamaki, Whangarei and Sutukaka areas. Ngāpuhi's unchallenged dominance of the Upper North Island was over. In 1833 and 1834, Ngaitahu launched two the full length of Te Waipaunamu, seeking utu from Ngāti Toa and their allies. And as more Taranaki iwi migrated south, conflicts broke out within Te Rauparaha's coalition over rights to resources. In 1835, those conflicts encouraged two north Taranaki iwi, Ngāti Tama and Ngāti Mutunga, to invade and occupy Rikuhu, the Chatham Islands, home to the Moriori people. And we tell that story in a separate episode. Wars also ravaged the east coast, the central North Island and South Taranaki as inland tribes got muskets of their own. Virtually every part of Aotearoa was touched by these conflicts. Our best guess is that 20,000 people died during the musket wars, the highest toll of any conflict in New Zealand history. Significantly more than the First or Second World Wars, or the New Zealand Wars. Plus, the population of Aotearoa was far lower during the musket wars than in those other conflicts. 
So if you think of the deaths as a percentage of the total population, the musket wars look even worse. However, you've got to remember the musket wars lasted more than 30 years, much longer than those other wars. If you spread the 20,000 deaths over 38 years, the discrepancy isn't quite so large. But however you look at it, the musket wars were unusually bloody. And there are a few reasons for that. First, these conflicts were fought inside Aotearoa. The fighting in the First and Second World Wars happened overseas, which meant New Zealand's non-combatants were mostly safe from the fighting. In the musket wars, they were right in the firing line. Second, and probably most significantly, when we talk about the causes of death during any war, we're including deaths from disease. And the musket wars overlapped with the arrival of a bunch of new deadly viruses and bacteria from Europe. (coughs) It's likely Toa and Heke helped spread these infections and worsened their impact. Towards the end of the 1830s, the musket wars were finally coming to an end. Why? Well, again, of course, there are several reasons. Probably the biggest was the end of the arms race. As historian James Balich puts it, The musket wars began when and because some Maori had muskets and potatoes, and stopped when and because everyone had them. Plus, Maori had designed new types of defensive fortification, the so-called gunfighter pa. These had networks of palisades with deep trenches and elevated firing positions, enough to make any potential attacker think twice, and they had a really big impact later on in the New Zealand wars when Europeans were not expecting these kind of defences. The spread of Christianity played a role too, of course. While some of the missionaries helped perpetuate the wars by providing access to muskets, others preached against aggressive warfare and personally intervened to prevent conflict. As time went on, Christian teachings became increasingly influential. For many Māori Christians, it became a point of principle to turn the other cheek rather than engage in violent forms of utu. For example, Wiremu Tamihana Tarapipipi of Ngāti Haiwa. He was a rangatira who took part in several battles in the 1820s. But in the 1830s, Tamihana converted to Christianity and became a dedicated pacifist, putting an end to feuds and speaking out against violence. In the process, he became greatly respected, even by some of his former enemies. In 1834, on the East Coast, another Māori Christian, Piripi Taumata Akura of Ngāti Purau, imposed rules of warfare which banned cannibalism and killing wounded prisoners. The musket wars also had a big impact on the founding documents of modern Aotearoa, Te Whakaputanga, the Declaration of Independence and the Treaty of Waitangi. Part of the reason the missionaries lobbied so hard for the treaty is they hoped British intervention in Aotearoa might bring an end to the conflicts. And some historians think Ngāpuhi hoped closer links with Britain would discourage Taiwa from southern iwi seeking utu for Ngāpuhi's attacks earlier in the war. You can also see that desire for security and stability in Hefakaputanga, where the northern chiefs who signed the documents say, We invite the southern tribes to set aside their animosities consider the well-being of our land and enter into the sacred confederation of New Zealand. And while the musket wars continued after the signing of Hefakaputanga and the Treaty of Waitangi, British intervention did sometimes prevent violence. 
The final conflict of the musket wars ended in 1845, when British officials intercepted a Ngāti Tūwhare Toa Taiwa en route to attack the Ihupuku Pā in South Taranaki. The Anglican Bishop of New Zealand and a British Army Major managed to talk both sides out of fighting. Ngāti Tūwhare Toa fired the final shots of the musket wars, symbolically into the air before returning peacefully to Taupo. But even after these wars ended, the consequences kept rippling outwards and set the stage for the next major conflicts in New Zealand history, the New Zealand Wars. While the musket wars were raging, Pākehā were getting serious about colonising Aotearoa, and the places they chose to colonise were heavily influenced by the wars. In some cases, it was sort of a mutually beneficial situation. For example, Ngāti Whātua encouraged Pākehā to settle in Auckland, Tamaki Makaurau, in the hope they would help defend the region against future Ngāpuhi Taua. Other cases were much messier. Settlements in and around New Plymouth and Whanganui were built on land some Māori had temporarily withdrawn from to escape pressure from rivals in Waikato. Pākehā then came in and negotiated to buy that land while some or all of the rightful owners were elsewhere. As you might imagine, this led to some very tricky situations and triggered several wars. What's more, throughout the New Zealand wars, the Crown relied heavily on Māori allies, and those alliances were heavily influenced by, you guessed it, the musket wars. Yeah, for example, in the Northern War, Honeheke and Teruki Kawati fought a three-sided war against the British and a fellow Ngāpuhi rangatira, Tamati Wakanene. Nene fought partly due to a personal rivalry with Heke, but also to preserve Ngāpuhi's relationship with Britain. Nene saw that alliance as crucial to preventing rival iwi taua from seeking utu. Similarly, when Hone Heke urged Te Whero Whero of Waikato to attack Pākehā in Auckland, the Tainui chief refused. Instead, he vowed to defend the settlement. Partly, that was because Te Whero Whero saw Auckland as a strategic roadblock to any future Ngāpuhi taua. The musket wars help explain why Māori as a whole couldn't unify against the British during the New Zealand wars. For many, the trauma of those conflicts was just too raw. How could you make an alliance with people who'd slaughtered your relatives just a few decades earlier? But some managed to overcome that history. Yeah, remember Wirimutami Hana, the Ngāti Hoa Rangatira who became a devout Christian? In 1825, Tamihana participated in a toa which resulted in the death of Te Whero Whero's grandmother. But he and Te Whero Whero were able to put that old grudge aside. In the 1850s, Tamihana was instrumental in making Te Whero Whero the first monarch of the Kingitanga, the Māori King movement, which aimed to unify iwi and retain Māori land and authority. And there's one final ripple of the musket wars, which we're still living with today. The horrific accounts of the wars from missionaries and other Pākehā writers painted a picture of Māori as an unusually barbaric and warlike people. Those narratives were used to justify British colonisation, and those justifications are still trotted out today. That's a bit of a hard thing to swallow, given many Europeans help perpetuate these wars by, you know, supplying all the muskets. 
and that Europeans had had plenty of their own nasty wars over the years. The musket wars were horrific, but that is the nature of war, not the nature of Māori. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Hooliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show.